right, good evening. Good to see you all here this evening. A couple of announcements. I bravely put up a schedule for the rest of the semester. We probably won't hold to it, but it'll give you an idea where we're going to try to go. I know i got to get through a lot tonight, so we'll see if we can't get started here real quickly. If we have a couple of weeks left, I probably will since I'm doing so much studying on the Da Vinci Code and Judas Papers and all of that. I probably will spend a couple of weeks at the end on those subjects and let you have a chance to ask questions or whatnot. If we don't get to it, or in addition to that, I wanted to advertise this class I think this class will be probably advertised this Sunday anyway in the verbals or in your bulletin. I'll be doing what's called a questions class on Sunday night, April the 30th, 6 p.m. in this room. And I'll primarily be covering probably questions about the Da Vinci Code and Judas Papers and whatever that night as well, as well as any any question anybody has. Uh, That'll be that. What we've decided to do as a church, if any of you have ever read Lee Strobel's books, A Case for Faith or A Case for Christ, he has also come out and done a simulcast that deals with uh, the Da Vinci Code. And we as a church are going to tap into that simulcast of Lee Strobel's on Sunday, May the 21st at 4 o'clock or 6 p.m. We'll have three regular morning services like we do, 8.30, 10, and 11.30, But then the two evening services will be this simulcast, okay? So uh, we feel it's that important that we want to tap into it. And if you've ever read A Case for Faith or A Case for Christ, you know how well Lee Strobel just puts it all out there and real orderly and real clearly and whatever. And he's going to do the same thing with the Da Vinci Code. So that'll be that. So a couple things coming up here. And it is a hot topic. There's no doubt about that. And we don't want to make more of it than what it is. But at the same time, uh, no, I'm not going to say that tonight. <laughs> uh, let's just say I have a few things to say. Uh, I'm known by some of my friends as an evangelical pit bull, so when it comes to stuff like this, I, uh, I really can get quite, uh, I have a, a background in debate, and uh, so I, I, I can get quite going on things like this. So. Jeff, did you hear that Opus Dei has come out with their own video? Yeah, I did I did hear that, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And uh, Opus Dei is sort of the secret organization within the Catholic Church, at least that's what Dan Brown would have you believe, that has kept these secrets secret for hundreds and hundreds of years, and finally... You know, they have been brought to light and all of that. We'll deal with the historical inaccuracies and the theological inaccuracies either here or here. Definitely it'll be done here. and We'll give you plenty of, of ammunition, okay? And that's really what it's all about. You know, part, part of our job as pastors and teachers is to protect the flock of God against false teaching and, and things like that. And... Uh, Jude says that we have to build up ourselves in our holy faith so that we can contend for the faith that was once and for all given and entrusted to the saints of God. And so, uh, for instance, let me just illustrate it this way. I have to settle in my own mind what the truth is because the world in which we live is very unsettled. This is actually leading into Revelation. Uh, It's very unsettled. 
And so I have to get to a point at some point in my life where I recognize, for instance, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And it doesn't matter if someone comes down 100 years later and says, no, 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 Jeff, 2 plus 2 equals 5, not 4. It doesn't matter what they say. If I know that the truth is 2 plus 2 equals 4, nobody who comes down later and says 2 plus 2 equals 5 is going to shake me from knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4. The problem is within Christianity, and I realize that's a really broad spectrum, most people don't know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 on a spiritual level, so that when these red herrings are flown out there by Satan, ultimately, people buy into them because they don't understand that, well, if I would have realized that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then this doesn't make sense over here with what they're espousing. And we'll, we'll get into all that, and we'll give you many specifics and how that all ties into the Da Vinci Code and the Judas Papers and all these other things. Now, the reason I said that this ties into Revelation is if you go to Revelation chapter 13, and that's where we're going to pick it up tonight, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into our study of, of Revelation. Lord, we thank you again for, again, just how marvelously you worked this past weekend at Cornerstone. Lord, for the thousands of people who came through these doors over the weekend, and for the Many, many people who made commitments to Christ and those who made recommitments to Christ. We just praise you because we know, Lord, that we didn't do it. It was you. You showed up. Your spirit was poured out upon this place and you moved in the hearts of people and drew them to yourself. And we thank you and praise you. You just allowed our church to be a part of that and to be in on what you're already doing. And so, Father, we praise you for all the decisions and just how you brought together this whole weekend. And we're... We just need to continue to rejoice in what you're doing here, uh, and, and we just thank you for that. We pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would again just show up and be present here tonight and just help me to get out of the way of what you want to do here tonight. Uh, just use me, I pray, as your mouthpiece, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about, in Revelation chapter 13, we were introduced to two major players in the tribulation and end-time prophecy. In chapter 12, you had the woman who was Israel, you have the woman's child, which is Christ, and you have the red dragon that was Satan. Then in chapter 13, we are introduced to the last two people who are part of what we call the unholy trinity. The Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, and the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. And the reason I said I, what I was saying was going to tie into our beginning of our study in Revelation is... When the Bible says that this beast, this Antichrist, rose up out of the sea, it's talking about the fact that he's going to rise up out of a very unsettled time. And obviously, we live in a very unsettled time. The world is unsettled. The world is looking for answers. The world is looking for leadership. The world is looking for someone who will come on the scene and be able to tie up all this together and bring some kind of peace and stability and security to the world. Because especially after 9-11, in our minds, you know, the number one thing that people are looking for today is security and safety. I mean, that's just everything. You know, that, that's what everyone is looking for. And so the world is in turmoil. The world is in this, this unsettled condition. For us, sometimes it's hard to look at the sea that way like the Jews did because I know for me, I, I love the ocean. And, I, and the, the ocean, actually, to go to the ocean whether I'm actually in the ocean or beside the ocean, actually is a very settling thing for me. I, to hear the waves coming in. But you got to understand, to a Jewish person, the sea always represented, 
represented a very unsettled place. It was a place that was very mysterious and deep and dark, and it was not a place that they liked, okay? So when, when the Bible says that this beast came up out of the sea, again, it's just reminding us that this Antichrist is going to come up from a very unsettled condition, but the reason he's going to ascend to power, first of all, is that the tribulation is a period of real political power, politics, if you will, and one world religion. And we have to understand that besides all the major players we've been introduced to in the book of Revelation, like Israel, Jesus Christ, uh, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, that we also have this taking place. We have a one-world government at that time in history. We have a one-world religion, which is going to be the worship of the Antichrist. And we're going to have a one-world economic system. All right? And so part of what you see beginning to play out in the beginning of chapter 13 is just a, a tie back in, and we don't want to take time to do this tonight, but if you go back and study Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, you will find out the description of the beast coming out with ten horns, seven heads, and all of that just deals with the political power that will be underneath him, supporting him at the end time. Many Bible commentators and and scholars down through the years have said it's it's a united Europe. It, it's the rebuilt Roman Empire, if you will, and it will be a, a European confederation of nations that the Antichrist will head that will literally rule the world. And there there is a lot to support that. Certainly Europe is becoming more unified than it ever has before. And with the introduction of things like the Euro, we can see a common currency starting to take place all through Europe, uh, so you can begin to see some of these things laid in place. I'm not going to go as far as to say I believe that, that has to be the way it is, but I will say this. The Bible clearly teaches that it's going to be power politics and a one-world religion that the Antichrist is going to be operating on. Now, you'll notice this. In verse 2 of chapter 13, though, notice how the Antichrist ascends. The dragon or Satan gives the beast his power, his throne, and great authority to rule. So, so more than at any other time in history, and with any other person in history, the Antichrist is going to be energized by Satan more than anybody else ever has been throughout history. So if people ask, how is this going to happen? How is he going to come to power? All this. Don't forget, the church is gone, and Satan is going to energize this person like no other person he's ever energized and indwelled and inhabited and worked through like any other person in history. You'll also notice that the Bible says that one of the beast's heads appears to have been killed, but the lethal wound had been healed, and the whole world followed the beast in amazement. Uh, it's just speaking about the miracle-working power of Satan. And let's remember something here throughout the book of Revelation, that miracles can be demonic as well as divine. So you can't say, just like what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the rise of the Antichrist is dealing with all kinds of signs and wonders and all of that, that we have to understand that miracle itself doesn't mean it comes from God. Satan can perform miracles, and that's part of how, again, the Antichrist ascends to world domination. And notice this, the Bible says, verse 3, the whole world is going to follow the beast in amazement. So, so the Antichrist, again, one world government, one world religion, one world economy, and it's all going to be centered around who we call, in the Bible, the beast out of the sea, or the Antichrist. 
you'll notice verse 4, they worshipped the dragon because he had given ruling authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast too, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to make war against him? In other words, the world will just say, hey, there's never been anybody on earth like this guy, and we're all going to follow him. As he's doing these miracles, as Satan is energizing him, as he has gotten the world to buy into his politics, to his religion, and to his economy. You'll also notice that verse 5 says, The beast was given a mouth speaking proud words and blasphemies. Uh, he is permitted by God to exercise ruling authority for 42 months or three and a half years, which is exactly one half of the seven-year tribulation. So the beast opened his mouth, blasphemed God. Uh, notice even in verse 7, the beast was permitted by God to go to war against the saints on earth at this time who've come to know Christ and to conquer them. Okay? So it, it's, it's going to look at this point in history like Satan is one. Like the Antichrist is one. Like there is no God on the throne, as we know we've already seen in the book of Revelation. And that's why then, when you come to verse 9, you have a very important verse, verses 9 and 10 in, book, in the book of Revelation. This is during the tribulation? During the tribulation. If anyone has an ear, you'd better listen. If anyone is meant for captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, then by the sword he must be killed. This requires steadfast endurance and faith from the saints on earth at this time. In other words, John is just simply saying to the saints, stand firm in your faith. In spite of what you see going on in the world, stand firm in your faith. And that's a message that you and I could even apply to our day and age. Because even though we're not in the tribulation, we certainly are living in unsettled times. We're living in very difficult, perilous times, the Bible says. And we've got to stand firm in our faith. And we've got to be an example of one that stands firm in our faith and is not shaken by all the things that take place in this world. For instance, an example I often use, I was pastoring back in New York at this time, but when the year 2000 was about to break upon us, man, I had some people in my congregation It was just going crazy. I mean, they just thought Y2K was going to end the world, and they had built bunkers, and they had food stocked up for months, and I'm trying to calm them down. And I'm trying to tell them, look, I mean, you know, there might be a few glitches and whatnot, but the if you know your Bible, you know this isn't the way it's going to end, all right? You've got to be calm. You've got to show some kind of stability. You see... One of the problems is, again, if we as believers don't really know our Bible and we don't know the Word and we don't know how things are going to go, then when things happen on earth, we can become very unsettled and people who don't know Christ looks at us and the way we're reacting and stuff and go, and your faith is stable how? You know, how, how is it stable? How, how is Christ making a difference in your life? You're just as worried and fretting over all this and as anxious about it as I am, and I don't even know God. So, again... We have to be careful, and we have to stand firm in our faith. And, and if, if anybody had to stand firm in their faith, it was certainly those who were alive during the tribulation, who was basically, again, if you just look at chapter 13 of Revelation, you're saying to yourself, Satan's won. The Antichrist is won, because God even permits the Antichrist to overcome the saints and to destroy them during the tribulation, to kill them, to martyr. Because most of the people who will come to know Christ during the tribulation will be martyred. For their faith. So it looks like it's all over. God, God either isn't or, or Satan is stronger than God or whatever. So a very, very, very important verse. I'm going to stop for just a moment in just a moment. 
Then verse 11, we're introduced to what's called the beast coming out of the earth, who at this time, things have settled down only because the Antichrist has taken over. And a lot of the instability and insecurities and things that people were dealing with before the Antichrist came on the scene, see, he's been able to alleviate a lot of that because of his absolute control upon the earth. So the next beast comes from the earth. He's called the false prophet later on in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. And he basically has the same ministry to the Antichrist that the Holy Spirit has to Christ. His, his theme and his, uh, his role is not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the Antichrist. And that's why it says here, like in verse 12, this beast exercises all ruling authority, the first beast on his behalf. He made the earth and those who inhabit it worship the first beast, the one whose lethal wound has been healed. Notice, he performs momentous signs. He makes fire come down from heaven in front of people. And by the sign, excuse me, and by the signs he was permitted to perform on behalf of the beast, he deceived those who live on the earth. He told those who live on the earth to make an image to the beast who had been wounded by the sword but still lived. And the second beast was empowered to give life to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all those who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So again, you see here, there's miracle power taking place. Uh, the Antichrist is on the scene. The false prophet is making the world just enamored. It's almost like uh, that, the, that the false prophet is simply the first lieutenant of the Antichrist and just trying to make people you know, worship him. And again, uh, it, it's all about the Antichrist. Now here's a portion of scripture that everybody sort of gets enamored with. And I just read it and make a few comments, and then I'll stop a moment. He also caused everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to obtain a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Thus, no one was allowed to buy or sell things unless he bore the mark of the beast, that is, his name or his number. First of all, this is just simply telling us once again that one of the ways that Satan is going to try to force people on the earth to worship the Antichrist is by taking a hold of this one world economy. You see, if there's one thing, and it's not even religion, obviously, because religion doesn't cross barriers and boundaries and nations, because each nation has a lot of times its own religion, its own faith, its own belief system. But there's one thing on earth that no matter what nation you're talking about, no matter what part of the world you're talking about, drives every nation and, and, and every government on the earth, and that is commerce. The, the dollar, the euro, the, the yen, whatever you want to say, it's commerce. And we are now living in, 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 a, in a world where the commerce is just flowing from one nation to another. And, and one of the ways that Satan is going to force people then upon the earth to worship the Antichrist is by taking control of the economy and basically saying, you can't buy or you can't sell unless you worship the Antichrist. So commerce is going to be taking control. So again, part of the issue here is not just the main players in the tribulation, which is Israel, Christ, uh, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and, and Satan himself, but it's that one world government that we've got to keep in mind, which is under the Antichrist, the one world religion, which is basically the worship of the Antichrist, and the one world economy that is controlled by the Antichrist. Now here's a verse... That again, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who is inside calculate the beast's number, for it is man's number, and his number is 666. 
there's probably not a verse in the Bible that has had so much conjecture yeah. as this verse. And let me just tell you my simple explanation for this verse. This verse is not a verse that should give any Christian or any pastor or any Bible teacher a license to come and say, the Antichrist is blank, blank, blank. Because I don't think that 666 has anything to do with trying to help us identify exactly by name who the Antichrist is. I think what God is trying to say here is this. And this is something that many times even we as Christians, if we were honest, we'd have to confess, yeah, you know what, we've gotten sucked into. Is this. We get more enamored by the Antichrist than we do the real Christ. And we concentrate more on focusing on him and, wow, what he's all about. And what the Bible and what God is trying to tell us is, yes, he is the, he is the greatest satanic, energized human being that's ever been put on the earth. But, 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 in spite of Satan energizing him, and in spite of the fact that, you know, he, he is going to rule the world, we've got to understand something and come back to something. He is a man, just like you and me. He is a human being, a satanically energized human being. And in a sense, a great human being, in the sense that he has the leadership skills, if you will, of a Washington or Lincoln. He has the charisma of a John F. Kennedy. He has the charm of a Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, He has the uh, communication skills of a Franklin Roosevelt or a a Ronald Reagan, if you will. Okay? Uh, He has the intellect of a Jefferson. All wrapped up into one person, but at the same time, the Bible is simply saying, but he's just a man. He's just a man. Don't worship him. He's just a man, just like you and me. As we say, he puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like we do. And so here's this: the world, instead of worshiping God, the one who created the world, and them and everything in it, has gotten enamored by this human being. And they have put this human being up on a pedestal and said, we will worship you, because you are great. And you just think about, my goodness, they're passing up the real God to worship the ultimate false God, the ultimate Antichrist, who is, when all is said and done, he is still 666. If seven is the number of perfection in the Bible, a number that, that when you study seven, it's connected with completion and with God as far as, that's God. That, that's, that God's a seven. What 666 is simply telling me is that this guy falls short of God's perfection at every turn, at every time. It doesn't matter who he is as far as mankind is concerned. It doesn't matter how Satan energizes him. He still falls short at the end of the day. He is still none other than 666. And so I think that's part of the reason why when I started this study of Revelation, I shared with you, look, folks, we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with, you know, all these other things as far as prophecy and judgments and spending weeks studying the Antichrist, because I would rather talk about the Christ 
and the one who's on the throne and the one who's in control and the one whose plan and purpose is being you know, accomplished throughout the book of Revelation, the one who in heaven is being adored by the angels and the saints and, and, and all of that, I would rather talk and focus upon him than to spend weeks and weeks and weeks on the Antichrist and give him more time than I do to the one who created him, which is Christ himself. And that's why I think we wanted to end chapter 13 in this way. We'll touch on it. We'll give you as much information as we think is pertinent about it. But then we move on because that's not going to be the focus of what we're focused on, if you will. Okay? All right. Comments, questions before we head into chapter 14. This gives me a stomachache. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's going to give lots of people a stomachache. <laughs> And of course, again, modern technology, you can begin to see that it's not going to be long before probably every baby that's born is going to end up having a microchip embedded in them. Uh, and, and again, why? It, it sounds good. Well, it's for security reasons. You know, we can keep track of them. And if they, if they get kidnapped or whatever, it's going to come across like we've just got to keep track of everybody. And so the best way to keep track of everybody is for everybody to just have a chip embedded in them. So that we can keep track of them. And then you begin to see, you know, back even when, you know, the first time I went to the grocery store years ago, and in, instead of the old cash register, they just took this thing and just passed this barcode. I was like, oh my golly, you know, that's revelation, you know. That's buying or selling, you know. And of course, we're moving towards a cashless society. And again, good thing about that is that you, you don't have anybody who would be able to come up to you necessarily and, and, and get money out of you because nobody will probably be end up carrying much money at, at most points. Most people don't carry money around with them anymore. It's plastic or something. And then we have the whole thing of identity theft and all of that because, again, it's not going to be stealing cash. It's going to be stealing people's identities and downloading all of that. And You can just see how all of this, if you just, you know, we just read the headlines, how we can see it's all going to play out. Yeah, Travis and then Ron. That's a good question. Does the Antichrist know he's the Antichrist? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, that's my own opinion, but yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think that obviously he's going to come to a point where he knows he's ruling the world. I mean, he understands that, but I don't know whether he actually, oh, I'm, I'm the guy and I'm the beast out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13. I don't know. I don't know. Could be, though. Uh, do you expect the, uh, the tribulation saints to have an underground economy, uh, commerce system working? I, I think that the tribulation saints will try to do what other saints have done down through the ages, whether they ended up in communist countries or whatever, where they'll try to go underground and exist for a while. But I, I think it, for the most part it's going to be futile. Um, I think that most of them will end up being killed and martyred for their faith, although I think there will be some who will escape the sword, if you will. Yeah. yeah. All right, Revelation chapter 14. I just want to take a moment here to just begin to talk about, again, we were reintroduced to this 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we were introduced to a couple weeks ago. The main point I want to make about this is this. That God wants all of us to sell out to him and his plan for the world. And God can enable any of us 
at any time that we're alive, as long as we're focused upon Him and depending upon Him, we can rise above the temptations of this world and we can live for Him even in the darkest hours of history. And this is illustrated here in Revelation chapter 14 with even during the tribulation, when, when the Antichrist is in control and when the world has a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy, and it's as dark as it can get, notice what this... Bible says about these 144,000 beginning in verse 4 and 5. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from humanity as first fruits to God, simply meaning they're going to be the first sort of uh, harvest of the Jewish nation during the tribulation period. And to the Lamb, and notice, and no lie was found on their lips, and they are blameless. And it's simply talking about their purity, their dedication, their commitment to Christ, even during the tribulation period. So again, what that says to me is this. If they can do it, and if Christ can enable them to live this way during the tribulation period, then he can enable me to live above all the trash and garbage of this world that I'm living with right now. I can be victorious. I, I can say no to sin. I can be pure in this world. I don't have to be, be stained and tainted by the world. I, I'm certainly in the world, but as Jesus said, I don't have to be of the world. I can be separate from the world. I can be distinct. I can be that light. I can maintain my light. I can do that because if Christ can enable them to do it during the tribulation, he can certainly enable me to do it during the time in which we live. And then in chapter 14... We are introduced to this eternal gospel, beginning in verse 6 and 7. It's going to be shared throughout the world. And again, it's just a reminder that even during the tribulation period, God is going to be reaching out to those on the earth, to anyone who wants to hear, so that they could turn to Him and repent at any time and come to Christ. Fear God, verse 7. Give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has arrived, and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. In other words... Worship the real God. Don't worship the false God that has put himself in Jerusalem, has sat in the temple of God in Jerusalem, who's blaspheming God by claiming to be God. Don't worship him. He's just 666. He's just a man. He's no different than you. Worship the real God. And so the gospel will be sent. And isn't it interesting that during the tribulation, again, because it's such a unique period of history, but unlike today, where God does not use angels to share the gospel, he only uses human beings to share the gospel, during this time, he actually sends angels out, says, you've got to get out there and share the gospel. So the gospel is going to be going out into all the world during this time. The 144,000 evangelists are going out. Remember those two witnesses that could not be killed for, for many, many years? are going to be standing there in Jerusalem, just, you know, witnessing and and people are going to try to kill them for a while, but they can't. We studied that in Revelation chapter 11. And finally, God's going to permit them to be killed. And then there's going to be that big celebration of their death. And then the breath of life is going to come back into them from God. And they're going to stand up and ascend into heaven. So they're going to be witnessing for a while. And then you've got these angels who are going to be going around the earth, who are going to be proclaiming, you know, judgment is continuing to come, folks. Repent and give your life to God. And then the second angel's announcement in verse 8 is that Babylon, the great city, has fallen. And I believe as we move into this, and we're going to definitely see this in chapter 17 and 18, that Babylon is just representative of, of sort of the, the headquarters, if you will, for this one world government, 
one world religion and one world economy. Now, I personally believe, and again, this is just my personal belief, that it is not symbolic, that I think it's real. I, I think that this is a literal city, and I think it's literal Babylon. And I think it's going to also be rebuilt. And before this whole thing with Iraq, many of you know, like I do, that Saddam Hussein was actually in the process of rebuilding Babylon. Because if you look at where Babylon is at, which was ancient Persia, it sort of straddles Iran and Iraq, which are two major players in the world today. In fact, it is very interesting that Iran now, I think what you're going to see is Iraq is going to, over the next couple of years, move off from the center stage of what we're talking about. And then Iran is going to come, come to play. Because Iran, according to prophecy, is a major, major player in end-time prophecy. And it's very interesting, again, when we talk about commerce and the world economy, and, you know, they're building these nuclear weapons. Well, they say they're not, but, you know, we got to believe them, right? <laughs> that um, they also are a producer of a fourth of the world's oil. And a lot of the nations, like China and other nations, don't want to touch Iran because they are a major supplier of their oil, of their energy, and all of this. It's no accident that God put all that oil underneath Iran and Iraq. It's no accident. Because the commerce of the world and the, the necessity for oil and all that is going to play into how all this falls out in the end times. And we're living through it now, seeing all the pieces being put together. All right. So I don't want to say any more about it than that for tonight, because we'll get more into Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. Then you'll see a third angel in verse 9 following, and it's simply a reminder of the everlasting torment and, and judgment that's coming upon those who reject Christ. Now again, then notice verse 12. This requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, the very same thing that we saw back in chapter 13. He's simply saying again, stand firm in your faith, saints, those who obey God's commands and hold to their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, Blessed are the dead, those who die in the Lord from this moment on. You see, the Bible teaches there's a right way to die, and there's a right way to live. I should change that. There's a right way to live, and there's a right way to die. And here John is just simply saying, Blessed are those who die in the Lord. That's the most important thing. Is that we know the Lord, and when we die, we die in the Lord. And then notice on... He says, verse 13, Yes, says the Spirit, so they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. And the Bible is simply reminding us as it's reminding those tribulation saints who will die for their faith that we need to wait patiently for the fulfillment of God's promises. We're doing that today. Just like the Old Testament saints waited for the fulfillment of God's promises. And the tribulation saints are going to be waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises because remember early on in the book of Revelation, those who have died who are now in heaven are saying, God, how long? How long is it going to be before you avenge our blood that has been spilled on the earth? And God says, just a little bit more time and I'll avenge your blood. Just wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. So it didn't matter at what point in history we were alive, whether we were living in the Old Testament age, whether we're living now in the church or New Testament age, or when we're going to be living in the tribulation. Everybody who knew God had to at some point wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. In fact, keep your finger there, and I just want to point this out. If you go back to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, 
want you to see an awesome verse that a lot of folks maybe have never looked at, especially tying it in with the context we're looking at it in tonight. Hebrews chapter 11. I can't even get there. Okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm not going to keep my finger in <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11 uh, in verse 39. This is the Hall of Fame of Faith of the Bible. It talks about all the great things that these people did by their faith and through their faith. But notice this verse. And these all, and these were all Old Testament saints, all the way from Abraham to David to Noah to Isaac, whatever, okay, Joseph. These all were commended for their faith. In other words, God commended them for their faith that they had in Him while they were living. But notice this. Yet they did not receive what was promised. Hebrews 11.39. In other words, don't miss this. God promised them that one day a Savior would come who would die for their sin, would be the once and for all ultimate sacrifice. Those Old Testament saints believed in that promise of God, but they never saw that promise fulfilled in their lifetime. They died before Jesus came. And he's simply saying that there comes a point, and this is where sometimes our faith is truly tested, where we don't always in our lifetime see the fulfillment of God's promises. But what we're looking for is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, not the immediate fulfillment of God's promises. And that's where the test of faith comes in. And just like the New Testament, now, we're looking back to the sacrifice of Christ. We, unlike the Old Testament saints, knew that that happened because it happened. He came, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. But now, also, we're living in an age where we're waiting for another fulfillment to come. When he comes back to receive us and to take us up to heaven. So again, it's a promise. We're waiting for that fulfillment. And you know what? Some of us will die before we see that fulfillment. Now, you know, maybe the rapture will happen tonight. And and we won't, you know. But all I'm saying is, we're not guaranteed that we're going to see the fulfillment of that promise. But that doesn't mean we don't believe in that promise and that we don't hold that promise till the day we die. Even when we die, we're believing, yeah, Jesus is going to come back someday. No doubt about it. Okay? And the same thing is true then in the tribulation. Because they're going to be looking forward, again, to the fulfillment of some of God's promises that He has given them. And that's why throughout the book of Revelation, you find this... One singular message to those who know God. Stand firm in your faith. Wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. Don't give up your confidence in God in spite of what you are seeing taking place in the world in which you live. And that message is not only applicable during the tribulation, my friends, that's applicable to you and I today in the day and age in which we live. We also need to be encouraged to stand firm in our faith as well. At the end of chapter 14, back to Revelation, it's just simply a reminder that Jesus is ultimately going to triumph over the forces of the world as these angels are pictured harvesting the earth in judgment. All right, before we get to chapter 15, we're just trucking right along tonight. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but I like to do it. (laughs) Questions, comments?
Yes. Uh, tie that uh, when the check will be handed out for reasons that the mark of the beast will be the scripture that talks about it in the end times, the very elect will be deceived. Is that talking about those? Will that chip only start in the tribulation, or will there be deceived believers that will take that mark prior to being taken out? Um. I think that the passage you're talking about is in Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. Let me go there real quick. In fact, go to Matthew 24. That's a good... Is it a cinder, but it's chipping the dog? <laughs> no. I mean, they're putting chips in the dog. Oh, I know. They're, 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 as I said, I think they're going to come a point where everyone will have a chip, you know. That's, that's what I want to know. Yeah. Are you talking about everyone now or everyone after the church is taken out? That I don't know. I don't know the timing of, of how that's all going to play out because the Bible, see, doesn't give us a specific how long after the rapture of the church before the tribulation starts. Is it the next day as far as God is concerned? Is it weeks? Is it months? Could it be a couple of years? We don't know. The only thing that the Bible is definitive on is that after the rapture, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation. So we know that, that the Bible is clear that whenever that starts and whenever it ends, it's going to be a period of seven years. Yeah. You mean the tribulation will not start immediately upon the exit of the church? I don't think that that's clear in the Bible, no. I think there could be some time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. Then how will they know when it starts? They won't. But that's why the Bible says, even Jesus says, that even they have to be alert and stay alert because they don't know the time that he's coming either. You see, they're, they're not going to be able to calculate it down to the very day that he's coming back at the second coming because they don't know when that actual period starts. I think only God knows exactly when that seven-year period is. Let me show you that in Matthew 24 because... They're, the disciples of Jesus are asking, you know, at the beginning of chapter 24, when are we going to see these things? You know, when's all these things going to happen? And uh, the, I just want to say this. It, in the first part of this chapter, I think he's talking about the beginning of the tribulation. Then in verses 9 through 14... I think, again, he's talking about things that lead up to the beginning of the tribulation that started at the beginning of the tribulation. In other words, I guess here's how I want to say it, so I'm, I'm not confusing you. From verse 3 through verse 14 of Matthew 24 deals with things and signs that's going to happen during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The reason I know that is because I know, based upon Bible prophecy, what will mark the middle part of the tribulation. And that is something that people can point to. And that is what's called the abomination of desolation, which is where the Antichrist goes in to the temple of God and, in a sense, hails himself as God. And you see that described in verse 15. So Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea, remember we talked about this last week, somebody asked me a question, are, are some people are going to be able to escape Jews and, and get to a place, and I talked about Petra and going, notice, they, they must flee to the mountains. The one on the roof must not come down. These are, these are things that are taking place in the second half of the tribulation. To take anything out of his house, 
He doesn't have time. And the one in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great suffering unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now or ever will happen. In other words, the second half of the tribulation is going to be even worse than the first half. The first half was bad. second half is even worse. Because the first half is where the Antichrist basically takes his time to ascend the world power. But then in the middle of the tribulation, after he's ascended to world power, is where he really puts the clamps down, and where we, what we talked about tonight, where it's going to literally be a one-world government, one-world religion, one-world economy, nobody will be able to buy or sell. It's going to be bad, 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 and that's what the Bible says. And then here's the verse that you were talking about, Alice. And if those days had not been cut short, and what I think he means by that is not that they're going to be 23-hour days rather than 24-hour days. I think if I've studied this, what he's simply saying is God only allowed this period to be a three-and-a-half-year period. If it would have been any longer than three-and-a-half years, then he goes on to say, here's what would happen. No one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And what I think he's simply saying is for those who will come to Christ and for those who are coming to Christ during the tribulation, I'm going to cut those days short so that his power will only be able to go for three and a half years. And then we get into Revelation 19 where the second coming of Christ comes at the Battle of Armageddon. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. So notice this. Then if anyone says to you, verse 23, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear even during the tribulation. They will perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. I don't think that they can deceive, but notice he says, if it would be possible, because of their satanic power, they could if it was possible. And then, remember I have told you ahead of time. So then, if someone says to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe him. For just like the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. And then he begins to talk about the very end of the tribulation, which leads to the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Christ, when he says this. Immediately after the suffering of those days, those three and a half year period, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And we're, we study this in Revelation here, coming up. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast. They will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of the earth, or from one end to, of heaven to the other. That's basically a synopsis of what's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus lays out. And see, here's the thing. A lot of people look at Matthew 24, and they think it's talking about where we live here and now. It's not. Again, if you study it, it's clearly a breakdown of the seven-year tribulation, with which the first, because again, the Jews weren't concerned about the rapture. You see, one of the reasons why people misinterpret Matthew 24 is they're looking at Matthew 24 through Gentile eyes rather than through Jewish eyes. The disciples were Jews. They weren't looking for the rapture. They were asking, when's your kingdom coming? And so Jesus was answering when his kingdom was coming. Well, his kingdom doesn't come at the rapture. The, all the rapture is is taking the church up to heaven, and then somewhere again the tribulation starts. The kingdom comes at the end of the tribulation, at the battle of Armageddon, when Christ comes back 
in power and great glory, destroys the nations of the world, and sets up his 1,000-year millennial kingdom on the earth. And that's why he answers this this way. And that's why Matthew 24 has nothing to do with the day and age in which we live. And so it's a misinterpretation of scripture to use Matthew 24 to tell people today, oh, don't believe these false messiahs and these false prophets if you're using Matthew 24 because Jesus is specifically talking about the, the, the climate during the tribulation. Now, that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't teach that there are false prophets and false messiahs alive today. I'm just simply saying... You can't use Matthew 24 if you want to be technical. If you want to be correct, if you want to cut the word of God straight, Matthew 24 is dealing with what's happening during the tribulation period. And we know that for sure because the abomination of desolation that Jesus Christ talks about is what takes place at the middle of the tribulation when the Antichrist goes into the temple of God, in the city of God, and declares himself to be God to the world. Okay? That's what Daniel talks about. And again, you have to, you know, one of the great things that you could ever do is to study the book of Daniel and Revelation together or do a study of Daniel and then a study of Revelation. Because that's really a true prophetic thing. And then throw some Joel and Zechariah in there and then you've got a complete, complete picture of it. And then with Matthew 24 and other places too, but I'm just saying. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yes. Right, yeah, things are definitely going to change, and in fact, according to Daniel, the Antichrist is going to work out an agreement so that the Jewish people can begin to worship again in a temple and start their worship of their God again, you see. But then he's going to break that commitment, Daniel says, in the middle of that three-and-a-half-year period where then he goes into the temple and says, you can't worship your God again, because I'm the only God you can worship, and you need to worship me. Uh, so again, that's part of how, I don't want to get too off, but that's part of how he ascends to world power and world domination. He begins to look like to the world and to the human beings who are alive that he is beginning to solve some of these age-old problems that haven't been able to be solved up to this point. How do you bring the Palestinians and the Jews together? How do they live in peace for a while, whatever? Evidently, again, based upon satanic empowerment, the Antichrist is going to have some answers that haven't been explored yet that are going to be, again, because it's all part of, of this plan, that the Palestinians are going to buy into and that the Jews are going to buy into, that both of them are going to agree to, that's going to provide the world with some type of peace and stability for a while until then he goes in and declares himself to be God. Yeah. Man, you are. My brain is fried already. Jeez. Okay. Let's go back to Revelation. You guys know, really. I, I enjoy it. You guys ask the best questions, and I, I really do enjoy this class. It keeps me in the Word about 50 hours a week, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. In chapter 15, here again, I want to remind us. That again, with Christ, yeah, it looks bleak, dark time in history, but with Christ and his help, those on the earth who truly know Christ and depend upon him can conquer, can conquer. Notice the beginning of verse 15, or verse 2 of chapter 15. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name. 
And it just reminds us that, again, even in this dark time of history, that God can enable his people to overcome Satan and the worst kind of evil and deception and sin and iniquity and temptation that the world has ever seen. So again, how do we apply that to our life? If God can do that during the tribulation with these folks, he can do it with me here and now. He can enable me to rise above the temptations of this world. If, if the day and age in which I'm living is not going to be even near as bad as what's going to happen during the tribulation period, then notice, they were standing by the sea of glass holding harps. And this is where you get the idea of harps in heaven. It's out of this verse in Revelation, okay? He handed them harps given to them by God. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And here's what the song was. Great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God, the all-powerful. And again, we saw there that in the original it means the one who has his hand on everything. Just and true are your ways, king over the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, they're just declaring the greatness of God and the fact that we're going to... Every human being is going to bow before God. It's just, are, are you going to bow before God, as Paul says in Philippians, as your Lord and Savior, or are you going to bow before Him as your judge? It's up to you. But every knee, Paul says in the book of Philippians, is going to bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And the part I wanted to look at here and how I wanted to apply this praise chorus, if you will, to our lives today is this. Do we have the eyes and ears for worship? What I mean by that is you'll notice here at the beginning of this, in verse 3, great and astounding are your deeds, just and true your ways. And it's simply a reminder that as we look out and see the way God is working and see what he's doing, that gives us fuel for worship. A lot of times, though, I know for me, I'm so busy that I'm missing some of the great things that God does, or, or I miss that beautiful sunset. And I don't stop and say, thank you, God, for that beautiful sunset. I don't take time anymore to stop and thank God for that beautiful flower that pushed up through, through the sun. I don't take the time to, to, to let my eyes and my ears and whatever see the wonder of God in creation and the wonder of God as He works in people's lives and to stop and to thank Him and to worship Him and to praise Him for all He's doing. And part of what makes a great worshiper is one who has his eyes and his ears open to what God is doing. So that we can, we can truly capture what God is doing and we can become a more effective and complete worshiper. And the same thing is true if you notice here about more knowledge of God. Because the more knowledge I have of God and his ways and his dealings and his deeds and how he works and all of that and his character, the more I will be able to praise him. And that's one of the great encouragements for why you and I need to grow in our knowledge of God. Because as we grow in our knowledge of God, all that's going to do is to create more of an opportunity for us to praise God for more things because we're discovering more about Him. We're discovering more of the way He works and how He works and all of that. And it just gives us more ammunition to be able to praise and worship God. And so I, I didn't want to leave this passage, this praise course, without encouraging and challenging all of us in this area of worship because one of the things that we have seen in the book of Revelation is this, that heaven is a place of worship, of unceasing worship. And... and Heaven is just a place where God is worshipped continually, without rest, day and night. And we need to be more about worshipping and praising God and thanking Him and showing our appreciation for all He does. But a lot of times, let's face it, we get up in the morning, 
we race out the door. We got our heads down and, man, we got this to do and that to do and whatever. And God is showing us all these wonderful things and bringing all these cool people into our lives. And we're just missing those opportunities to say, thank you, God. Thank you for that person, God. Thank you for that sunset, God. Thank you for that beautiful flower, God. Thank you that, that I can see these things. Thank you that I can hear the birds sing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's part of worship is just being sensitive to the world around us and to what God is doing. And you see this here in this praise course in Revelation chapter 15. Uh, just ultimately, the end of chapter 15 is just telling us that God's righteousness is ultimately going to triumph over iniquity. And that's really what, since chapter 15 is only eight verses, uh, that's really what the, the end then of chapter 15 is talking about, is that, you know, God wins, and, and God's righteousness is going to triumph over iniquity in the end. When you get to chapter 16, I just want to make these comments, and then I'll wrap it up for any comments or questions. You also notice another praise chorus, and this other praise chorus begins in verse 5 of chapter 16. And this praise chorus is basically reminding us about the character of God, because one of the things that people struggle with when they read through the book of Revelation is, is it's almost like they, they begin to, you know, God is, God's not just, God's not fair, and God's cruel, and, and God's this, and God's that, and, 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 and what we need to do is we need to let the Word of God frame our reference for God and remind us of the character of God, and that's what he's doing here. Notice, you are just the one who is and who was, the Holy One, because you've passed these judgments. Because they poured out the blood of your saints and prophets. So you have given them blood to drink. They got what they deserved. You see, the bottom line is this. And we've shared this before. I'm either going to allow Christ to take the penalty for sin, or I'm going to take the penalty for sin. But in order for to Him to be a holy God... Somebody has to pay for sin. I can either accept Christ's payment on my behalf, or I pay for it myself. And in this time and in this economy, though God in His mercy and His grace has been holding back judgment, finally, 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 there's going to come a time in history where He's not going to hold back that judgment any longer. And all those people upon the earth are going to get exactly what they deserve. He's held back because he's given them time to turn to him and to repent so that they would not have to get what they deserve, but there comes a point where they do. And let's remember something, and this is something that's very important, that no matter how rough this life gets down here on earth, for those of us who know Christ, let's not forget, this is the only hell that we will ever know. And for those of us who don't know Christ on this earth, that anything good that we experience on this earth is the only piece of heaven we will ever know. Then I heard, verse 7, the altar reply, Yes, Lord God, the all-powerful, your judgments are true and just. Uh, we as human beings can say, no, no, it's not fair, it's not just, there's got to be another way, you know, yada, 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 etc., etc. And God is simply saying in his words, no, 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 my... My character is fine. 
And everything I have done is absolutely just and fair. Now, in our little human mind, and the way we look at things, we might begin to interpret God's not just, and God's not fair, and God's, you know, a, a respecter of person, all this. But the Bible declares God is just. Even his judgments are true and just. As someone once said, God is too wise to make a mistake and too good to do any wrong. God is too wise to make a mistake and too good to ever do anything wrong. And even in the midst of this, God is again showing us the hardness of men's hearts. Because as the eternal gospel that we saw earlier on tonight goes out into all the world and the 144 Jewish evangelists and, and the word of God is going out so that all people would have to do is repent and turn to God. Notice at the end of verse, well, notice verse 9. Thus people were scorched by the terrible heat, which was a judgment by God, yet they blasphemed the name of God who had ruling authority over these plagues. And notice, and they would not repent and give him glory. Notice in verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their sufferings and because of their sores. But nevertheless, they still refused to repent of their deeds. In fact, if you go through chapter 16, you come to the end where in verse 18, it describes an earthquake unlike any earthquake that mankind has ever experienced. Everything on earth is going to crumble. Everything on earth is going to crumble except the hearts of men. Because notice at the very end of chapter 16, once again, we are reminded that instead of repenting and turning to God, they blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since it was so horrendous. Three times in chapter 16, we are reminded of how hard men's hearts are to God. That God is willing to save them. He wants to save them. He's reaching out to save them. He's giving them opportunity to be saved. But as the judgments are coming, what do they do? They blaspheme him. And they will not repent and turn to God. I mean, I think God would say to us, and I, I hate to be the one to put words in God's mouth, okay? But I think God would say to us at this point, I did everything I could to bring these people to me. You, you and I could, will not stand before God one day and be able to look God in the eye and say, God, you could have done more to bring these people to you. I think God would say, I did everything I could do save forcing them to trust me, forcing them to commit their lives to me. I did everything I could to bring them to that point, but they would not. Remember the picture of Jesus. Before he went to the cross, he was outside Jerusalem. He was weeping. He stretched out his arms, the Bible said, and as he was weeping, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I often wanted to gather you to myself as a hen does her chicks. But you would not. You would not. And it just shows us the tender, loving compassion of God who wants to bring people to himself but they refuse. Their heart is so hard that they will not come. <laughs> yeah, Mary. Do you think this is the year of all the hurricanes and earthquakes all over the world? God has a lot to do with us 
Oh, I, I certainly think, and I think I've shared this in here before, that based upon Romans even, that the Bible teaches that creation is under the curse of sin. And that the longer creation goes, the more upheaval there will be with climate and, and with storms and all of that. There's going to be more extreme, extreme. When it gets cold in places, it's going to get extremely, extremely cold. And when it gets hot in places, it's going to get extremely, extremely hot. It, it's going to be, oh, it's probably going to hit 150 here. It no, I'm just You Don't go to Jeff is prophesying it's going to hit on that. Don't do that. I'll be fired tomorrow, and rightfully so. Uh, but I agree with you. I, I think that it's all, again, just a build-up. And, and again, just God trying to get people's attention as part of it, saying, look, the end is coming. Uh, you know, let, let, let's repent. Let's, let's get your heart right with God. Because none of us knows if we're going to have tomorrow. We could leave here tonight and, and not any of us even make it home. So we have to be prepared. And that's really what the message of Revelation is. Not only stand firm in your faith, but be prepared. That's why Jesus, all down through his prophetic messages, would always say, you know, I'm coming as a thief in the night. And that wasn't just for the rapture. That was for the second coming as well. If you see the book of Revelation, he makes that very same statement in Revelation. Because he wants his people to be prepared and to stay prepared. And to be ready that whenever time it hits, that we're, we're ready to meet God. And we're living where we need to be living. We're living right in the center of His will for our lives. And we're, we're as committed as we possibly can be. We're not living a, a sloppy, careless, apathetic Christian life. We are living a, a dynamic, on fire, committed, focused purposeful Christian life. That, that, you know, if, if I'm going to meet my Savior one day, I want to meet my Savior knowing that I, I'm, you know, I'm on the right path, I'm living for Him, I'm not perfect, but I sure am on that road, pressing toward that mark of, of uh, my high calling in Christ. Uh, that's the way I want to leave the earth. Um, and I think that's the message of the Bible. Because uh, we don't know the day of our death. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, so we've always got to be, got to be ready, got to be ready, got to be ready. Guys, you're great. I, I so appreciate this. But if you guys don't have any further comments or questions, I'm going to wrap it up with prayer, and I'll let you go. Next week, we're definitely going to talk about Babylon. And Babylon here, basically, we're going to dive into the world government more, to the world religion more and to the world economy more, okay? And I'll be able to tie this in, I think, very interestingly with some of the things we see happening today. And again, not to get terribly into it, but even to start seeing why are things like this, the Judas papers and things like this, why are these things, how do they tie in with prophecy? How does that all work? How is it all meshing? We're going to start talking about those interesting tie-ins and things beginning next week. All right, let's close here. Yes. What, one question. On sure. At the end of 15, you have that the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple. Is there any significance there about God pretty much saying, you know what, the time is done? Did I miss that? Or No, yeah, I think at this point that the time is done because... When you get to the end of chapter 16, 
in the book of Revelation, you literally are chronologically through the tribulation. Because see, chapter 17 and 18 doesn't deal with any chronology of the book of Revelation and the tribulation. It is just further describing this Babylonic system, this government, this economy, and this religion that we were introduced to here. So in 17 and 18, there's no further chronology in the tribulation. It's basically over here. Because then in chapter 19, what happens is the second coming of Christ at the Battle of Armageddon. Because let me find it real quick for you. So I guess my question is, yeah, things are definitely coming to an end, and that's a clue that they are. Well, and, and I, I realize that all the, the seven bowls get poured out in chapter 16, right? Which is right. hell on earth, literally, right. probably. But is there any significance to him filling the temple with, with smoke, not allowing anybody in there anymore? Does that mean that at that point, nobody is is safe beyond that? I think probably that's a good way to render that. So then yeah. 16 is really just teaching them a lesson, but at that point, it's they, there's no point in... Right, right. Yeah, he's giving up and he's just latching out. Yeah. And don't forget in 1616, it says, The spirits gathered the kings and their armies to the place that is called Armageddon in the Hebrew. Uh, the Valley of Megiddo, many ancient battles were fought there. It is an absolute perfect place to bring armies together. If you know anything about history, especially military history, you know that many, many battles have already been fought in the Valley of Megiddo, in the place that the Bible calls Armageddon. And it will be the place where God will bring the armies of the world together again, right there in the Middle East, for one final battle. We're going to be looking at that again, Revelation chapter 19. You won't want to miss that. And that culminates with the second coming of Christ, again, in power and great glory, like we looked at in Matthew 24. Yeah. Yes? Do you know who the kings of the East are? I think we probably have a pretty good idea. Again, I hate to be dogmatic, but I think you could throw China and Korea and nations like that in there who are definitely on the stage today. You know, Korea's got the nuclear power. China certainly has nuclear power. India has nuclear power. So you're talking about nations that not only have great populations, but have pretty good military power and have, uh, you know, nuclear power at their disposal as well. So, yeah, it, you, you can see it all just, I mean, it's it's being set. It really China is the table being set. Either, right? No, no. All right, let me pray and I'll let you guys go. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, though, you know, as we move through a book like Revelation, we, we do have to touch on the great dragon, Satan, and the, the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. Lord, we only touch on them so that we can gain some kind of understanding into your plan and purpose for what's going to happen here. But Lord, most of all, as we've also seen tonight, we want to be focused upon you. And we want our thoughts to be about you and, and your greatness and your goodness. And, and we want to be sensitive to all that you're doing and all that you are so that we can be effective and complete worshipers. Help our eyes and our ears and our senses to be open to all that you're doing around us so that we can truly worship you. And Father, just take us from this place just so ready uh, to just live for you like never before. And to just thank you for the privilege of living, Lord, in, in such a unique time in the history of the earth. 
that, Lord, out of all the other times down through history that we could have been born and been alive, Lord, we are alive now, seeing all this played out before our eyes. Lord, what a, what a privilege. Yeah, it's a difficult time in many ways. But, Lord, it's also a great privilege to be a part of it. And, Lord, we know and have been also challenged tonight that we can be a light in the world in which we live. If those folks during the tribulation can rise above all that they're going to deal with, then, Lord, so can we with your help. And so, Lord, we just ask you to just make us a light in our community and in our neighborhood, wherever we go to school and wherever we go to work. As we rub shoulders with people, Lord, may they just see the Lord Jesus Christ shining through our lives like never before. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. You're great. Thank you.